from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? What a mess. How many phishing scam emails did you get today? It's nuts, right? Have you noticed how every news report these days includes a ransomware story? Pipelines, meat suppliers, TV networks, even hospitals. These hackers have no soul. We're hearing about groups called Shadow Brokers and WannaCry. Wait, they have brands now? It seems like it's an industry. The hackers have offices, hacker employees, health plans, paychecks, bonuses. Some apparently operate out of Russia. And of course, nothing happens in Russia that Putin doesn't say is okay. It's kind of a war, right? It's like accelerating like a war. One that doesn't seem to have any borders, no rules, no beginning, maybe no end. Sometimes it's about stealing secrets, other times it's about money, ransom, and it hits us wherever we're most vulnerable. If someone isn't paying attention in your company, or for that matter, in the U.S. Department of Defense, bam, some hacker company has a backdoor way to shut down oil or power or just about anything. And what's made this easiest? Apparently, crypto, Bitcoin, ways of getting paid ransom that aren't easily trackable. Well, wouldn't you like to know that your government is paying attention? laying aside all the political and partisan nonsense and actually working to solve what seems to be the new and growing danger to our country and all of us. Turns out, led by one of the most digitally literate computer science trained congressmen, Ted Lieu, our Congress is paying attention, creating legislation and working toward getting a handle on this scary, seemingly growing, clear and present danger. Well, Ted Lieu is here with us today, so we can hear it straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. This is part one of, well, let's call it a Ted Lou talk. This is politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. And my co-host once again is Jane Albrecht. As an international trade attorney, she fought for U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials in many countries. She's a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar, and she's also been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. Hey, Jane. How you doing? Welcome. Great. It's wonderful to be here. And welcome, Ted. Thank you for joining us again. And our special guest, Ted Liu. He's a rising star in the U.S. Congress, and he's gotten there the old-fashioned way, with brains and hard work. He's a three-term congressman from California, but he's worked hard not just for his constituents in California, but for all Americans. Many of you know Ted because of his work in the House Judiciary Committee on Climate Change and as one of the managers of Trump's second impeachment and more recently, as a leader in Congress's action on hate crimes against Asian Americans. What many of you may not know is that Ted has a computer science degree from Stanford. In fact, he's one of only four U.S. congressmen who are computer scientists. Ted is our leader in Congress on these critical cybersecurity issues. He has a deep understanding of the kind of solutions that are needed in Congress, and frankly, what's reasonable in each of our personal lives. Thanks for joining us again, Congressman. Thank you, Bill, and appreciate their introduction. Well, let's get right down to it. Congressman, is this just a new level of media focus, or is there an exponential increase in cybersecurity breaches and ransom attacks? I'm a recovering computer science major, and it's pretty clear to me that both the public and private sector are far behind where hackers are in terms of being able to defend Americans from cyber attacks. And I believe that cyber attacks will only continue to grow and increase in the 21st century. It's one reason that last term I introduced legislation to provide incentives to get people retrained into the cybersecurity professional field. I'm going to reintroduce that legislation again this year. It's called 
the New Collar Jobs Act. And I think we need to get a lot more people into these cyber fields in order to help protect Americans in both the public and private sector. Well, there are so many bills that you have been part of in this regard, and we're going to talk to you about a few of them here. But maybe you could just lay out for us what you think are some of the biggest cybersecurity threats to us today. Sure. At the public sector level, the military does a pretty good job in terms of defending itself from cyber attacks. There's an entire U.S. Cyber Command, as well as a lot of different units within the military. The sole mission of protecting the military and training personnel to make sure that they don't accidentally hit on a link they shouldn't and to make sure that cyber attacks don't penetrate the military system. The civilian side of the government is much weaker. When I was in Congress my first term, it was the Obama administration, we had a massive breach at the Office of Personnel Management and a foreign country stole basically all their security clearance records of every federal employee. Oh my! It was not a kinetic rocket attack. It was not a violent attack. It was a cyber attack that reduced our national security. This foreign country now has a treasure trove of potential blackmail information about federal employees. And we took a look at it. And first of all, why is a human resources agency protecting what has been called the crown jewels of American national intelligence? It's sort of crazy. It'd be like having the Department of Agriculture protect our nuclear launch codes. You just wouldn't do that. So I worked on a bipartisan basis to see if we could get this database moved out of the Office of Personnel Management, and we were successful in doing that. U.S. Cyber Command now protects this database. So there's all sorts of things going on in the civilian side that you just have to fix and make sure that we don't keep it open to hackers. Ted, is it reasonable to think that perhaps now we should take certain types of information, even in this day and age, offline? It's very interesting you, you ask that. With the breach at the Office of Personal Management, there were IG reports that had looked at the security of the computers used by OPM, it's known, uh, the Office of Personal Management. And with each successive report, you'll see that the IG kept getting more and more alarming in what they were reporting. And in one report, they literally told OPM to shut down its computer systems. Unfortunately, OPM did not do that. That's one reason this breach occurred. It's also one reason I was one of the first members of Congress to call for the resignation of the head of OPM. And that person, in fact, did step down. We're seeing continual problems even today. And we saw them under the Trump administration as well. This is just going to continue. And that's why we need to increase cybersecurity, both at the public sector, as well as in the private sector. Ted, with the hacking of the OPM records, the national security clearances, was it clear that this was done by a foreign adversary and not by just a criminal gang? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, the public reporting is that this was done by a foreign actor. What we're seeing today is now a combination of foreign actors as well as criminal gangs and criminal gangs that are within foreign countries in which the foreign country is complicit with this criminal gang operating. So you have different variations of these hackers. But the bottom line is you have way more sophisticated hackers than the targets that they're trying to make the attack on. But with the OPM hacking, does the government know what country it is? 
I believe that information is classified. The public reporting is that it was a foreign state actor. And by the way, it doesn't really even matter at some level what that foreign state actor is, because that foreign state actor can also sell those records to other foreign state actors. And so just the mere fact that it was stolen is in of, of itself a very big problem. Ted, last December, and this is incredibly timely because obviously Joe Biden is about to chat it up with Putin. So I think this is a good time to talk about it. But last December, after a pretty major hack, you said that the scope of this hacking operation is alarming and demonstrates what we already know. Russia is not our ally and Vladimir Putin is not our friend. So under those circumstances, Ted, how would you see America's policies on dealing with Russia changed? I hope President Biden discusses with Vladimir Putin the issue of these cyber attacks. They're coming directly from the government of Russia, and they're also coming from hackers who are based in Russia. Which we know nothing happens in Russia without permission, right? It's unclear whether these hackers are doing it with the permission of the Russian government or if they're doing it by themselves. The Russian government doesn't know. Either way, these are hacks that are originating from Russia. And first of all, the Russian government needs to stop trying to hack America. And they also need to crack down on criminal hackers uh, who are hacking American governmental institutions as well as American businesses. I, I might watch too many movies, Ted, but do people stay alive long in Russia if they're doing something that Putin doesn't want? That That's a... Uh, Great question. I don't really know the answer to that. <laughs> As you know, Bill, I used to work closely with Russia, including the years when Putin was early in power. What I learned from doing business in Russia and from Russian oligarchs and watching it myself is the Russian government has far more control over their businesses, including their oligarchs, than the U.S. government could ever dream of. And every oligarch there knows it. And furthermore, I was there when they were laying fiber optic cable. And the Russian government wasn't going to let it go in unless they had a way to access it. So in my view, whether the Colonial Pipeline hack, for example, was pure criminal gang operation, if Putin didn't encourage it, he certainly didn't mind it. And the minute he wants it to stop, in my view, it'll stop. We'll be right back with Congressman Ted Lieu and Jane Albrecht. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you mind if I ask you both to comment on a world politics review statement from not too long ago? It's not really fair of me to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. They said, despite wave after wave of Russian-sponsored cyber attacks on the U.S. and its allies, Washington still apparently lacks the political will to defend against this Russian aggression. Any thoughts? I think that's correct for the civilian side of the federal government. Again, the military side is pretty good. Uh, military side not only has very good defensive capabilities, it also has very good offensive cyber capabilities. But the problem is you've got a number of governmental institutions on the civilian side that don't have enough cybersecurity. And then the private sector is just all over the map in terms of their cybersecurity defenses. Some institutions like financial institutions are pretty good. 
other businesses are not. And if you look at the Colonial Pipeline hack, the CEO admitted that they didn't even have two-factor authentication. What that means is you can't just have a password and then you're immediately into the system. Well, with two-factor authentication, you would need something separate, such as a separate physical ID card with a PIN number attached. At the Colonial Pipeline, you just need a password and you were in the system. And so that itself showed how lacking in cybersecurity that the company had. So we just need to have a lot more companies upgrade their cybersecurity defenses as well as their cybersecurity practices. And of course, in in the pipeline issue, it really kind of demonstrates our kind of domino effect, right? Because it turns out they shut down the oil, not because of the hack, but because they wouldn't have a way to charge people for the oil because the hack shut their computer system down. Is that correct? I don't know all the details, but it's very clear that if you have a business that either has a service that's very critical, such as a hospital, or a lot of records that they can lock up, or it's related to critical infrastructure, then anytime a hacker goes in and messes up your system, people are going to be harmed. And you're going to be in the situation where either you pay the ransom or a lot of people get harmed. So there's been hospitals, for example, that have paid ransoms because patients' lives are on the line. I'm completely with you on that. But let's take a hospital for a minute. If a hospital gets hacked, they're not going to shut off my oxygen. They're going to have other problems. They may not be able to dispense medicines or what have you because they won't have good records, but they're not going to shut off a critical infrastructure. Shouldn't we as a country kind of have a strategy and a plan for such a thing as the pipeline, where you don't actually shut off your community if it's not directly attached to a computer system, you really shouldn't care whether or not you're properly billing for the oil that you send. Ted, to what degree can the U.S. government mandate that things happen in the private sector? We clearly could. So one reason financial institutions are much better with cybersecurity is because we mandate it. We've literally passed laws, and there's a number of regulations telling financial institutions how to better protect their data. We could do that to other industries. We really just haven't. But as these hacks continue to increase, it may be worth looking at what other industries we should pass laws and regulations, because clearly it's something that keeps occurring, and these businesses apparently are not learning to protect themselves better. What kind of things can the government mandate? We could simply mandate certain standards that they must meet in terms of cybersecurity. We could even mandate that they actually just get cybersecurity in the first place. You'll be shocked. There's those businesses that don't have any cybersecurity. There's all sorts of things that we could mandate. One of the things that we heard in our first two episodes of our hacked series here is that One of the most vulnerable areas is Microsoft. And just email alone is creating a wide open door to people who want to hack companies. Shouldn't we be a little more involved in something that prolific as a Microsoft if they are creating open doors to hackers? Well, so I think there's two things going on. One is emails and phishing and and those sorts of attacks. Another are the operating systems that, for example, Microsoft has or Apple has and so on. And the reason that you get all these software updates all the time is because these companies 
realize that they have vulnerabilities and trying to patch these vulnerabilities and to update their software. It may be that at certain points in time, Microsoft is particularly weak. They'll fix it. And then another day, it'll be an Apple weakness that someone discovers. I think it sort of depends on what point in time you're talking about. And I think companies are trying hard to fix the vulnerabilities in their system, but it's difficult because hackers are very, very smart people. And when they find vulnerabilities, they're going to exploit them. But when companies realize it, then they will send out these patches. And one of the best things that people can do is make sure that they upgrade uh, their software and put in all the patches uh, when these companies tell you to do so. When you use the term vulnerabilities, Ted, you remind me of a recent bill that you were integral in presenting. I think it was called VDPs or Vulnerability Disclosure Policies. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. This has to do with intelligence agencies knowing about these vulnerabilities and then basically exploiting them without sort of telling the company. So I have two bills on this. One basically tells our intelligence agencies, look, you've got to come up with some process to determine which vulnerabilities you should actually tell the company because a lot of people could be harmed if that vulnerability is exploited by a hacker. And for those that you think are so critical that helps American national security, we get that you might want to keep that to yourself, but you need to have some sort of process that Congress, the American people can have confidence in so that if it is in fact a vulnerability that could affect a lot of people and could harm a lot of people that you tell the company so they can fix it. Another issue related to vulnerabilities has to deal with government contractors. If you're dealing, for example, uh, with a third party, they don't have to disclose the vulnerabilities in their software. So we have basically written legislation that says, no, 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 if you're going to contract with the government, you got to disclose any vulnerabilities in your software. So we could take a look at that and figure out if, in fact, we want to contract with you. Interesting. Ted, isn't every organization, government and private industry, as only as strong as their weakest link? Because any employee, if they click on the right email, the company's going to have a problem? Yes. So what happens in these cyber attacks is you'll see two ways of intrusions. One is through technology, but a very common way and perhaps even more common is through what's called social engineering. Uh, they simply get an employee to do something they shouldn't. And so if an employee clicks on a link they shouldn't have, it might then allow a virus to enter the system or if an employee divulges information that they shouldn't, it may allow a hacker to enter the system. So training employees is really important. I know that in the military, I'm still in the reserves. And every year I have to go through an annual uh, cybersecurity certification training. And then every now and then there are fake phishing emails that are sent to military members to see if we'll click on it. And then we'll be told. Ooh, as a test? Cool. That's actually a good idea. Yes. I can bet you that many private sector companies just don't do this. Right? You have to spend money in cybersecurity. You got to spend money training your employees. You got to spend money hiring people to try to uh, see if your employees actually were, in fact, trained. So, this is a cost. But as the cost of hacking increase on businesses, perhaps you'll see businesses take cybersecurity more seriously than they do now. Absolutely. Ted, did you ever get caught? Not to my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ted, we're going to take a 30 second break. We'll be right back. 
On Medicine, We're Still Practicing, join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Spoiler alert. Next week, tips on how to avoid your own personal cyber attack with Congressman Ted Liu and Jane Albrecht. This one is interesting. The Space Infrastructure Act. You actually are directing Homeland Security to designate a space system service and technology as a sector of critical infrastructure. Is that something brand new that you're bringing to the floor? Yes, this is bipartisan legislation that I'm bringing, introducing. Right now, there is about 16 critical areas designated as critical infrastructure, uh, such as transportation, such as energy. However, the space sector is not so designated, even though with every passing day, space becomes more and more important. Your banking transactions at the ATM, for example, rely on space satellites. GPS that you use to navigate around relies on space satellites. Communications with other countries relies on space satellites. And so you can imagine the problems if hackers are able to access these space satellites and control them for nefarious reasons. And so we want to make sure that we designate the space sector as critical infrastructure so that we can devote more attention and resources to protect space assets against being hacked or other intrusions. A lot of private companies are involved in satellites and other space endeavors. So right now, those private companies just sort of do what they want in terms of cybersecurity? Well, it's not just space. Right now, largely, unless you're in the financial services industry, every private company just does whatever they want in terms of cybersecurity. And that is unfortunate because some of them do a very bad job at it. As the Colonial Pipeline hack showed, they weren't you know, even doing something as basic as two-factor authentication. I do have to say, though, that there is, for example, a cost to two-factor authentication. I remember when the military first implemented it, it was annoying. It was time-consuming. And I, for example, in the military, for me to use my word processor, I can't just have a password. I need to have a separate physical ID card, stick it in the computer and have a separate pin in order for me to even use my word processor. Now, if I forgot that ID card, I was useless for that entire day, or if I forgot that pin. And so there is a cost to this, but it's also much safer in terms of preventing the military from being hacked. And I just think businesses need to take that simple step of going to two-factor authentication, have at least a second means of identifying you before you can enter the system. Beefing up our cybersecurity seems to be like supporting mom apple pie in the American way. Where is opposition in the Congress coming uh, on this? Or do you think these kind of bills will happily pass through both the House and the Senate with a 60-member Senate, filibuster-proof Senate? So I hope that we can get cybersecurity legislation through this term. There is a lot of pressing issues, such as the pandemic, right, getting our county back on track. And so the Biden-Harris administration, as well as the Democratic leaders in the Senate House, correctly prioritize making sure we suppress the virus and making sure we get our economy back on track. So I'm very pleased we passed the American Rescue Plan that is doing exactly that. And now we're working on the American Jobs Plan. But as we now see these hacks do some serious harm to Americans, I do think cybersecurity legislation will start 
to rise to the top in terms of priority. When does something change from hacking and ransomware to an act of cyber warfare? Uh, that is a great question, and I'm not sure anyone knows the answer. Uh, so I have asked that very exact question uh, a few years ago of the administration. They didn't really know how to answer that. I think it's a very gray area. It is very unclear, and it's something we're going to look into more, but it is a very nebulous area. Part of it is also because it's oftentimes difficult to know exactly who did the hack. We can be sort of sure, for example, uh, that it was done by a criminal hacker not affiliated with a foreign state actor, but we may not be entirely sure, or we might be mostly confident that it was a foreign state actor, but it could just be a criminal hacker. And so oftentimes it's hard to identify exactly who did the hack. Putin denies it all. To what degree can our intelligence services be sure these things came from Russia or in the case of solar winds, Russian entities that are controlled by the state? Based on public reporting, our intelligence agencies have high confidence that Russia, its military arm, has in fact been hacking America for years and years and years. In addition, you've got criminal hacking organizations in Russia that are also hacking American businesses and the American government. I think it's a little less clear exactly what their relationship is to the government of Russia. And of course, in England, Queen Elizabeth I, pirates did their bidding. So it's not unusual for states to encourage piracy of all sorts. I am certain Russia, in terms of their government, that they are thrilled that America is getting all these hacks, uh, criminal hackers. There's also that to consider. Ted, I'd like to talk a little about what's going on with this concept of kind of a borderless war. You know, if you look back into the late 60s and early 70s, when we were fighting in Vietnam, one of the things we found out, even as a defense military superpower, is fighting a guerrilla war was not in our DNA. We, we really weren't great at it. This is kind of like the ultimate guerrilla war, right? It has no borders. We never know where the hackers really are, who is subsidizing them. Are they state-sponsored or lone wolves? This seems like we need to kind of rethink how we fight such a war. What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. It's not even just that the hackers always seem to be one step ahead of the public sector and private sector in America. It's also that a lot of this, again, is just human beings taking actions that you don't want them to take. And so if you've got, for example, over 30,000 people working at the FBI, it just takes one of them that has access to the system to make a mistake, click on a link they shouldn't have, and you could have a cybersecurity problem. Or consider, for example, the NSA, probably uh, one of the most secretive organizations on earth, they probably have some of the highest technology in terms of protecting their systems. And we know a lot about the NSA. Why? Because Edward Snowden walked out of NSA with a whole bunch of NSA secrets. Uh, so you've got to really rethink uh, cybersecurity from a lot of different angles. And it is an incredibly difficult problem. And in the 21st century, it's just a problem that's going to continue to grow and grow, which is why I think we need to get many more people retrained as cybersecurity professionals. We need to devote more funding to our governmental agencies to do cybersecurity. And then we need to get the private sector to take cybersecurity much more seriously than they're taking it now. 
tell me if I understand this correctly, when you bring up NSA, weren't some of their own hacking tools actually stolen and then used against us? That is what the public reporting stated, yes. I don't understand. Can you explain that to me? So public reporting alleged that hackers got access to some of the NSA tools so or, or tools of potentially other intelligence agencies. I think it's fine, by the way, for intelligence agencies to develop tools to improve American national security. But when some of these tools were then either leaked or stolen or somehow got out there into the real world, the public reporting is that some hackers got these tools and then use them to uh, go go do hacks. So obviously there's some tools there that exist. Would it be putting you in a terrible spot if I asked you to share with us what the USA capabilities are in the world of hacking ourselves? Are we good at it? So this is the way I would I would answer it. I don't know specifically what it is that we have in terms of our tools, but I do know just from reading various articles that the US has very good in terms of military side, very good offensive cyber capabilities. That's something in a lot of people's minds. Militarily, we're unquestionably the most dominant military force in the world. Is the U.S. still the most formidable cyber power in the world, or are, have we slipped to number two, or everybody else is catching up? I wouldn't really know the answer to that. Uh, I do know that the U.S. military and their non-civilian side takes cybersecurity very seriously, as well as offensive cyber capabilities very seriously. I know when the U.S. military trains, it takes cyber into account during their training exercises. And the U.S. military, the Department of Defense, is very aware of the harm that cyber attacks can cause, as well as what the U.S. can achieve if we ever had to deploy our offensive cyber capabilities. Again, that's very different from the civilian side of governmental institutions, as well as many private businesses. Is this kind of like our nuclear proliferation from the the 60s, where it was just kind of a mutual assured annihilation, and that's what's keeping a reasonable amount of cybersecurity, I don't know, let's say goodwill on all sides or or at least cooler heads prevailing. No one's going to really pull the trigger on something really substantial because they know that the ramifications could be so great. I'm not sure that there actually is goodwill going on. I think Russia continues to attack America through their cyber attacks. Uh, so do other foreign countries as well. In addition, you have a lot of criminal hacking organizations that just don't care. They're just going to keep on doing cyber attacks. So that is a big problem. And uh, it's interesting that you did bring up the nuclear analogy. The difference would be, imagine if it was really easy for any criminal to just make a nuclear weapon. That would sort of be the analogy. That's, that's pretty scary stuff. Do you think this is something that's going to be controllable going forward? Are we going to get our arms around it? Or is it kind of inevitable that something really catastrophic is going to happen? You can certainly mitigate the problem. So this is maybe the sort of the best analogy I can come up with. Many American businesses are like a home where you just leave the door open. And so bad people can just walk through that door. However, you could increase security and not do stupid things like leaving your door wide open. So you can close the door. Maybe you invest money in a better lock. 
and that might prevent some burglars from getting through. Maybe you put in an entire alarm system that might dissuade maybe even more criminals from getting into your home. But if a state actor like Russia is going to send their advanced elite SWAT team, they're going to enter your home. And so at some level, there's only so much a business can do. But right now, let's at least get businesses to close their doors and put on locks for cybersecurity so that they don't get easily hacked. So it's just sort of different layers of protection. And many American businesses don't even have very basic layers of protection. Thanks for joining us again, Congressman. Thank you. I appreciate it. How can people follow you, Ted? So I have uh, two social media accounts. I have a very classy and polished one. It's called at Rep Ted Liu. And then there's mine. And mine is just at Ted Liu, T-E-D-L-I-E-U. And I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Next week, tips on how to avoid your own personal cyber attack with Congressman Ted Liu and Jane Albrecht. And by the way, don't forget to hit that follow button so you don't have to hunt around for next week's episode, especially part two of Meet Me in the Middle's Hacked series, The Ted Lou Talk. Thank you to our producer, Joey Salvia. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And the executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. And a special thanks once again to Jane Albrecht for all you do to forward the point of this show. We'll see you next week, everyone. Kirko Media. Media for your mind.